Have you ever gotten really, really mad at someone for telling you the truth? So it was a Wednesday night. I was uh, still in seminary. I lived in this house with a bunch of guys, and we just finished Bible study. And, and in Bible study, we had covered Psalm 15. Do you know, do you know Psalm 15? It goes something like this. Uh, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? It's, it's the one whose walk is blameless. He who does what is righteous, he who speaks truth from the heart. And I, I, we had studied through that passage, and I had sat under that passage, and I left that Bible study just crushed, like crushed, like depressed. Like I was, I knew that that wasn't me. I, my walk wasn't blameless. I knew that I wasn't righteous, and I was straight up depressed. I was like brooding and sulking and despondent. So I go up to my room, and my roommate, who I had been roommates with for a year plus at that point, he had heard my stories. He knew how I struggled with guilt and shame and things like that. And, and, and he knew that at that moment, I was just at my lowest. And so with the gentleness of a sledgehammer, he turned to me and said, and I quote, Anderson, you're a legalist and a liar. You tell people that they're saved by grace, but then you act like your works save you. You need to get over yourself. And he was rude, and he was offensive, and he was right. Like, I grew up in the same world you grew up in. It's what sociologists call a meritocracy. Not a democracy, but a meritocracy that we, our value is assigned to us based on our performance, on our merit, on our comparison with other people. Like, I grew up in the same world you did. That You have to, if you outsmart, outwork, outperform others, then you succeed. So who is it? It's the smartest student who gets the A. It's the best salesman who gets promotion. It's the best athlete, the strongest, the fastest who gets varsity. It's the prettiest girl who gets the guy and all the other girls hate. Like it's the world we live in. Success is measured by your ability. Success is measured by your ability to stand apart, separate yourself from the crowd. That the very definition of American success is to be distinct, divided, unlike other people. To compare yourself, it's performance, it's comparison, it's just the way things are. It's the air we breathe. And when things don't fit into this, we're really disturbed. So, you know, if you want to get some guys mad, you just have the, the, the best team not get the right bowl game. <laughs> It's when the, the best employee doesn't get the promotion. It's when the best candidates don't end up in a presidential election. Huh? Like, it's maddening. It's just not right. And when it comes to our relationship with God, we take this same logic. Like, it's really, really hard to not assume that God is just, just like everybody else. So... I mean, I, I don't know. At that point in my life, I'd be like, sure, God loves me. He's God. That's his job. He's got to. But I was convinced that God was really disappointed in me. Like, he couldn't be pleased with me. Like, if he was actually looking at my stats and comparing me to, like, saints and missionaries and pretty much any Christian in Asia or Africa, I was like, I knew that I, the theological term, I believe, is hosed. And when I read in Psalm 15, who may dwell in your sacred temple, who may go to your holy hill, I was like, not me. So we're in a series called The Most Important Thing About You. 
And the basis of the series is that when we look at ourselves, when we examine our souls, all the, the complex parts that make you, you, so your, your relationships and your body and your mind and your heart and your will and all those things that make you, you, when we, when we look at that, we discover that our thinking, the stories we believe, the stories we tell ourselves about God and this world and ourselves, those stories are of first importance. And we've been saying it this way, that we, that the Bible will put it this way. We're transformed by the renewing of our minds, but we've been saying it this way. This is a, actually based on an old Puritan saying. What you think about is what you love, and what you love is what you do, and what you do over and over again is who you are becoming. What you think about stirs your heart up, and what you love, that's, that's what you're going to do. And what you do over and over again is who you're becoming. And we're saying that, that what you think about is of first importance because it decides ultimately who you're becoming. And this is all based on a, a quote the, the theologian, pastor, scholar, A.W. Tozer puts it this way. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us because it decides who we're becoming. And so we said we want to leverage this. We don't want to sit back and just continue to believe whatever the world tells us. That we want to go in there and we want to root out the lies, those, those stories, the serpent whispers in your ear. And we, we want to fix our minds, as the scripture says, fix our minds on, on the right things, on true stories, on the stories that God himself tells, the stories that Jesus says, the stories that reveal who God is. And today we're going to look at a lie that I have personally struggled with. And took years, years of unrooting. And if I'm not careful, I could slip back into it any moment. And this is the lie. God would like me if I just work a little harder. Like he loves me, but he's really disappointed that I haven't been behaving better. Like if I just follow all the rules, then God would be pleased with me. If then. That's the lie. Our story today comes from... One of Jesus' most famous stories, Luke 18. Luke 18, verse 10 through 14. We'll have the key text up here, but if you want to follow along your phone or Bibles, I'd encourage you. And it goes like this. Luke 18, starting in verse 10, reads like this. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So two men go up to the temple. So this is a recreation here. They go up to the temple. The temple is the place where people go to meet God. The temple is the place where, pe- where things literally die. Animals literally die in order to, so that people can have God's approval. You get it? So the place where God's presence is on earth, this is the temple. This is where heaven and earth meet, that somewhere be- beyond the, the gates through the courtyard, up the steps, past this brazen altar that is burning with sacrifices, consuming sacrifices. If you go around that, you go in and then up into the inner section and through the doors and through the inner holy place and past the veil. And then finally you go through this massive veil and you enter into the most holy place and you find a box. And in that box the Ten Commandments. And this is the standard. Like if you want to enter God's presence and you want to know what the standard is, here's this. 
God's Ten Commandments. Like if you want to enter into God's presence, if you want to know him, if you want to know that he's, he's pleased with you, then this is it. You need to completely and fully do these ten things. And the man who, or woman who wants to come into his presence has to do these. And in the place right above, see where those two cherubim come together? The place right above this box has a special name. It's called Halasteron. Halasteron. It's, it's a word that we um, gets translated in a number of ways, but no English words really fit this. So like sometimes it's called mercy seat, sometimes it's called place of atonement. My personal favorite is propitiation, just because I get to spit all over the elements while I say that. Halastron is the place where heaven and earth meet. It's, it's sometimes referred to as God's footstool. This is where God's holy presence was made manifest. And once a year, once a year, with the sacrifice of a bull and goats, the high priest could come in and he would sprinkle, in the name of the people, sprinkle the blood of bulls and goats upon that place once a year. And that was the only time a person could actually enter in. And that's the only time that you could know that God was pleased that his wrath was satisfied, that he wasn't angry with you, that he's not disappointed. And what we hear in this story is Jesus says this. Two men went up to the temple, to this very place, to pray. And when, if all you got to know, if you know this story at all, who's the hero of this story? When you show up at the temple, well, it's the Pharisee. The Pharisee is a guy who has devoted his life to fulfilling, living out the Ten Commandments, but not just the Ten Commandments, 603 other laws, mitzvot, that you'd find in the Old Testament. 613 laws. That's what he does for a living. He devotes all of his time to memorizing those 613 laws and exactly fulfilling them, every single one. Like, it's, it's like he set aside all personal ambition so that he could achieve this. And, and you got to realize, um, we think of religion as very intimate, personal, like a private decision. Not so much back then. So when, so when you go into this, this is, this is a, um, he's doing this not just for himself, but for love of God and country. So let me tell you the, the story that was commonly believed back then. The reason we as a nation are oppressed, suffering, poor, is because we're not righteous enough. Is because God doesn't approve us. The reason we're suffering and poor and oppressed is that we're not living up to God's law. So when the Pharisee comes in there, here's the logic. Here's the logic that he's living by. If we could just turn this tide, if enough people acted like I act, if enough people followed the rules, all the rules, then God would have to bless us. He'd have to be pleased. He'd have to follow us. This is what you see lived out time and again, especially in the Gospels by the Pharisees. Verse 11, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. So he like pulls out the Ten Commandments. He says, number eight, check, I do that one. Number seven, and even things that are on the Ten Commandments, where one of the 613, I do those. And then here's the best part. He even goes through the list. And if you're like, there are some things that God didn't even ask him to do. He's like, but I do those too. I fast twice a week. Did, did God ever ask anyone to fast twice a week? No. No, he commanded all healthy Jewish men to fast once a year at the Day of Atonement. 
But he's saying, like, I am so good. I'm like the high priest on the day of atonement. Twice a week I do that. Like, that's how awesome I am. And so when you, when this guy shows up, he's a hero. And as, as if you're a first century Jew, and you hear this prayer, like you, you go to the temple, you're just doing your thing, and you see this guy over there who's praying this prayer, you're just like, this guy's awesome. Like, if he could just influence enough people, like he's right, that's what's wrong with our world. That's why we're oppressed by Rome. That's why we're poor. That's why we're suffering. If enough people would just become more like him, we'd be, we'd, we'd be better off. Like our country would be saved. This is the type of guy that you want your, your daughter to marry. You want this guy to run for public office. But, 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 the problem is, at least in this thinking, the reason why God isn't blessing us is because there's too many other people like the other guy. Watch this. There's a tax collector. The tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And you just want to be like, if you were there, you'd be like, oh, please. Really? I mean, I don't know if you guys know this, but tax collectors weren't even allowed into parts of the temple. They, they were categorized along with murderers and Samaritans. Like, it's actually, if he's too close to the temple, it's actually breaking some law. Like, this guy, he, he can't even look up to heaven because he knows who he is. If you, if you look at this in certain translations and in the Greek text, it actually translates, God be merciful to me, the sinner. The sinner. Like, the definite article here. Which sinner? The The sinner. You know, you know how this is used, right? Um, so, like, did you see the game last week? And if you have to ask which one, then you're obviously not smart. Steelers, Eagles. So the guy's the sinner. It's like the only one that matters, the one that everyone knows about. Like, he's the sinner in a category all by himself. So tax collectors, tax collectors were famously corrupt and famous for thieving, and you probably know all that. Um, the bigger issue, though, is that tax collectors were working for the Roman government. So they were betraying their people to support the Roman soldiers who were raping your daughters, corrupting your young men, oppressing your people. They were at root traitors. And so this traitor shows up. Here's a Pharisee who he's living righteously because he wants to bless all of God's people. He wants God's blessing on the nation. And then you have this tax collector who's a traitor to the nation. Him showing up at the temple is just absolutely offensive. Like, we don't have categories for this. This is, this is Miley Cyrus singing at a purity concert, okay? Like, this is like you show up to the vegan potluck and you're like, ooh, I brought veal chops. You know? It's like tofu, torture baby lamb. Anyone? This is insane. This is offensive. The man is responsible. He's personally responsible for the fact that Roman soldiers are raping your daughters, corrupting your young men, and oppressing your whole nation. It's like, how dare this man think that God would possibly hear his prayers. But here's the thing. When we read this story, this is not our story, and this is not a first century Jewish story in general. This is Jesus' story. And in Jesus' story, he hears both prayers. 
He hears the Pharisees celebrating his moral victories, and he hears the tax collector crying out, and he says this, verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That this tax collector, this traitor, this evil man who's lived his life in evil ways, who's, who's hurt everyone around him, he's justified. He's, he's, God is pleased with him. He is declared righteous. That's what justified means. But the Pharisee, who's devoted his entire life to following all the rules, he's lost. As lost as could be. Helpless. So if we were to hear this story in the first century, or even if we were to share this story on the streets in our own modern contemporary day, the big question is like, what? Like, really? How is this supposed to make any sense? How, how, how does the, the tax collector end up being the hero and the Pharisee end up being lost? Like, this doesn't make any sense. In fact, the, the whole way Jesus tells the story, it's like supposed to confound you. Like, it doesn't, it's supposed to flip everything in your mind. Like, he lays it out like a, like a mystery. It's like the movie, uh, I'm dating myself here, but Sixth Sense. Like, if you ever see it, like, like all along, like all the clues are right there in front of you. But until the very end, you don't get it. And this is the way Jesus, all along the way, he's, he's throwing these clues down. Four major clues. So if you're taking notes, four major clues here that he's thrown down in this story so that we can rethink that we intentionally, he's forcing us to stop and say, this story doesn't make any sense. How do we put it all together? And so I, for the rest of the time, I just want to walk through the four clues of this story to help us make sense of why this story shows us a God that is completely unexpected. The first clue is this, preposition. I want you to notice how, in verse 11, how the Pharisee approaches prayer, and it hinges on one little word. It says, in at least the ESV translation, says, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, now, if you've ever seen Jewish prayer services or maybe um, seen pictures of the Wailing Wall at the temple today, it looks something like this. Right? All the prayer shawls up. And notice, is anyone by themselves? No. They pray together. You come together in prayer. That's part of the point, part of how it works. But notice in this text, this says, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. This guy thinks he's separated even from the other good Jews, not only from the tax collector, but from everyone. It, when we, I'm not like God. I thank you that I'm not like other men who struggle so much and can't be as perfect as I am. Like that's the prayer that, that in this, there's something going on in the text that he's praying by himself. He thinks he's separated better. His performance has achieved something. But there's something else. If you, um, Bible study methods 101, when you want to study a text, you break out three or four different translations, right? So if you pull out the uh, NASB translation, another common translation, it'll say, the Pharisee stood and was praying to himself. Now this could be a possibility too. Maybe it wasn't that he was praying by himself, he was separating himself, but maybe he was actually not praying to God at all, but it was like a mirror. You, my friend, are beautiful. Can I tell you how great you are? When I think of you, I'm just in adoration. It could be that. I mean, this is a real possible reading. But there's another, another preposition used in an, another common translation. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. 
Now this makes sense. If you read through his prayer, he mentions the word I five times. You know that's a bad sign when you're praying. God, I am so great. Let me tell you about the I, I, I do this. So, uh, I mean, imagine. Imagine uh, I, I'm, I'm thinking of my wife. And so I want to write her a nice note. So I say, I thank God that I'm not like other men. I'm such a great husband. Like I take you out on dates and I do my, wash my, my dishes and I don't punch you in the face. And like, I'm so great. If I left that note for her and she came home and read it, what would she think? She would punch me in the face. Why? Because that wasn't a note about her or to her. That was a note about myself. So here's the question. In this text, is the Pharisee praying by himself? Is he praying to himself? Or is he praying about himself? And let me suggest to you, I think that the answer might be yes. Like, it, it, Jesus is famous for this. This is called a double or triple entendre. So, so John chapter 3, uh, you must be born again. Or is it from above? Hmm? And the answer is yes, you must be born from above and again. Both. And so when we come to this text, I think Jesus might, with one little tricky phrase, turn of the phrase, is actually saying, yes, this man is praying uh, by himself, to himself, about himself. Everything about this prayer is about him, is centered in him, is about his self-justification and not about God. Can, if your approach to God makes you think that you're better than other people, leaves you talking to yourself, and leads you to tell God how great you are. May I suggest to you that you are not worshiping God, you're worshiping yourself. You're not approved by God, you're self-approved. The question is, how could someone so supposedly devoted to God come to this point? Clue number two, the list, the list, the list. So in uh, verse 11, it goes like this. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. And then he lists out all the list of ways that he's so much better than other men. Now, I want you to stop at this first phrase, though. I thank you that I'm not like other men. Like, why would anyone, anyone even say that when they're talking to God? Unless they believe that God's approval was a competition. Unless they believed that in order to be righteous, you had to be more righteous than other people. I was generally a very good student in school. Um, In fact, I'm still a little bitter about the fact that in sixth grade, my music teacher gave me a B in recorder. Like, shoot, B on my record. Um, So generally, my standard was perfection. Huh? And uh, and then I got in my junior year of high school. I was like, yes, I'm, I was taking some college courses. I took calculus. I was like, I'm going for it. And I get into calculus, and I'm like, oh, no. I see why juniors in high school don't take this. And um, I took the first exam, and I was terrified. Like, there was, um, when I got it back, there was more red ink from the professor than I had originally written, you know, one of those deals. Like, I had gotten a solid third of the problems wrong and uh, got a, a C-minus on it, and I was, I was horrified. Like, I had never gotten a C-minus on an exam in my entire life. 
And then I found out that I set the curve and got an A. So my strategy from there on out was um, I don't have to actually know calculus at all. I just have to outstudy you guys. Ah! So that was my strategy in calculus. And may I suggest to you that that seems to be a lot of people's strategy for getting into heaven. They think God grades on a curve. Like, like are you, if you ask someone on the street, are you a good person? They'll be like, yes, I'm a good person. I've never killed anyone. I'm better than Hitler and all of our presidential candidates. Like, I recycle and I'm like local organic. I drive a hybrid. I'm a good person, you know? Like, I don't kick small dogs. I mean, you just, they go through, they create this list in their mind. They're like, when I think of other people and all the terrible things they do, I mean, I'm a good person. I'm better than them. Therefore, God has to approve of me. Therefore, God has to be pleased with me. But can I suggest to you that that is not the standard? The standard of God is God himself. It is his love. It is his holiness. It is his goodness. It is his faithfulness and his wholeness. God does not say be holier than everyone else. He says, Leviticus 20, 26, be holy as I am holy. Jesus does not say, be more perfect than everyone else. He says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. God's approval is not a competitive sport. If you're competing, you're competing against his holiness. And let me tell you, friends, we always lose that competition. That's what the apostle Paul means when he says, all have sinned and fallen, what? Short of the glory of God. The only way you could possibly think that you're living up to God's standards is if you made some superficial list of do's and don'ts that God knows nothing about and then judged yourself according to that. Like the only way you could think you're living up to God's standard if, is, is if you, you came up with some type of list like, oh, well, I followed all these rules just like the Pharisee does. But if you notice something about these rules, this list... Well, all of these are simple. All of these are external. All of these can be measured and seen, like, did you steal or did you not steal? Did you commit adultery or did you not? Like, all of these. But as if I remember correctly, there's a whole other set of, of laws in the Old Testament that are um, a little trickier, like, a little more important, like things like uh, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and you should love your neighbor as yourself, and you should not envy. You shouldn't covet your neighbor's possessions. Specifically, the donkey is mentioned. Donkey or neighbor or success. You shouldn't covet. And these are not simple and external, but somehow all of these are missing from the Pharisee's list that he thinks because he's done all the external things, therefore God has to approve him. But he's completely narrowly defined sin by a list of do's and don'ts, many of which God never made up in order to self-justify. And Jesus is going to cut through all this. Have you ever read Sermon on the Mount? Here's a question. Um, is it possible to never commit adultery but be controlled by lust for your whole life? Is that possible? All the men are like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yes is the answer. Yes, yes. Is it possible to never steal and yet be completely choked by greed? Is it possible to give away 10% of all you have 
and still be envious of your neighbor and greedy and selfish? Can you be at the right church and the right place in society and look the right way and have all the right external behaviors and still be not right with God? And the answer is yes. If we focus just on those external things, we're we're missing everything. We are as lost as the Pharisee. The, The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will say it this way. Who cares if you give away millions of dollars if you're only doing it for yourself? Like, who cares if you raise your hands in worship and sing loudly if your heart's far from God? Like, who cares if you perfectly follow all the rules but have no relationship with God? Who cares? You could be the best person in the world. You could look better and achieve higher and and take every box. But this still won't make you righteous. Because God doesn't grade on a curve. God judges you against himself, his selfless love, his kindness, his grace, his truth, his wholeness. And when you stand in that judgment, the only prayer to pray is God have mercy on me, a sinner. So the clue number three is this, the definite article, which we already mentioned there. And it's in this word, God have mercy on me, the sinner. That when we come face to face with God, we stop comparing ourselves with other people. We compare ourselves with God. And we then, all of us, when you stand in the presence of God, you recognize how broken and how needy and how desperate you are. It is a moment of self-realization. It's Isaiah saying, woe is me, what a wretched man am I. It is the apostle John falling like a dead man. When you stand in the presence of God, you realize that you are the sinner. That there's no way to earn his approval. And it's offensive to God to think doing our little list of do's and don'ts we could. Those who are closest to God actually really see this clearly. See, the Apostle Paul calls himself, what, the worst of all sinners. So one of my favorite little characters from church history is a guy named St. Francis of Assisi. And St. Francis is a guy who, like, he's just better than us. Like, it's just, he's better than us. In the last 1,500 years, I don't know that there's another Christian who, who walked in the power and the life of Jesus quite the way this man did. And... Um, The man used to, like, kiss lepers and give away everything he had. And he just, Jesus, like, oozed out of him. And and here's the funny thing, though. If you read his writings, do you know what he called himself? Brother Ass. Referring to a jackass. Or stubborn donkey. That's that's how he referred to himself. And you know why? Because he lived his life in the presence of a holy God. And when he did that, he realized how broken and stubborn and prone to wander even he was. This is a man that we now like make statues of and put in like little bird sanctuaries. When you live your life in God's presence, you realize that God does not grade on a curve and there's no way to earn his approval on our own. Okay, clue number four, and this will be our last one. The word for mercy. So in this, uh, he prays, you know, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And uh, how many of you are familiar with 80s pop music? Anyone? Okay, so a few of you. So 80s pop music, if you know 80s pop music, you know the Greek word for mercy. 
All right, here, here's, our, uh, here's our Jeopardy quiz of the day. In 1985, Mr. Mr. topped the charts with this super hit. Kyrie eleison, right? Right? So, let's sing it. Kyrie eleison, the, the road that I've... Okay, you're not singing. But you get it, you know? Kyrie, you know the song. And you just wish you had hair like that guy. <laughs> so, here's the point. Here's the point. We know that word. What is that word? That is Kyrie, Lord, eleison, have mercy. This is if you've ever been to a mass or liturgical service, you repeat this over and over again. Kyrie eleison, Kyrie eleison. Lord have mercy. Christ have mercy. Lord have mercy on us. Like this is the cry. This is the cry. This is what you say. And this is the common Greek way of, of saying these words. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. When we come to this text, um, that's not the word they use. It's, it's kind of weird. They use a rare word here. And it's... um. Halastron. He literally play, prays a, a, a verbal form. God, Halastron. Like I'm standing outside the temple right now, and I know that the only way possible that a man like me could possibly come into your presence is if something happens in there that I have no power over. Like God, Halastron. Like, I'm standing outside because I don't have any right to come in there. And unless there's an unblemished, perfect sacrifice who will shed his blood in my place, there's no way, there's no way I don't deserve it. I am helpless and hopeless. God, Halastron, God, Halastron. That's what he prays. God, if it's dependent on me, I'm ruined. I put my whole trust and my whole confidence and my faith in the substitute that you alone can provide. And what does Jesus say to that prayer? I tell you, this man, this sinner, went down to his house justified. God was pleased. God declared, that's my child. He's mine. He gets it. Church, do you get it? Like, do you hear this story that, that breaks all of our boundaries? Like, the good guy, he's got it all wrong because he thinks it's about himself. But the guy who has nothing and knows that he has nothing and prays simply, God, Halastron, he's the man who comes righteous before God. When you feel loaded down with guilt and shame and that voice whispers, you know, God is so disappointed in you. Did you really fail again? When you can't even look up to heaven, do you know what this means? It means you're free. There is nothing quite so liberating as confessing, God, I'm a sinner, but I stand by Christ's righteousness. So, St. Francis is my favorite, like, saint who's really nice. Martin Luther is my favorite one. He's really not nice. <laughs> Famous for passing gas and drinking beer, among other things, cursing. But he has in one of his sayings, uh, one of his table talk where he was sitting around with his students and they recorded what he said. He would say this. It's a famous little story. He said, Satan when, would wait until he was depressed, until he was despondent, until he was covered in guilt and doubt and shame. And in that place, he said, the ancient serpent would come and whisper in his ear, you're a miserable sinner. 
How dare you call yourself Christian? You don't deserve to be a preacher. To which Luther would respond, You're right. I am a miserable sinner. And I deserve nothing. But I get everything. Because Christ is my righteousness. Church, God does not grade on a curve. And this is good news. No matter how spotty your performance, whether you followed all the rules or not, God's pleasure, his righteousness, his promise of justification, that he declares you righteous, that he's pleased with you, is not dependent upon your performance or your comparison with others. It's dependent upon Christ alone. It's dependent upon his sacrifice. It's dependent upon his righteousness. God halastron. God halastron. So if you are a recovering Pharisee who's worked really, really hard to try and earn God's approval and feels so guilty every time, you're like, oh, shoot, I didn't read my Bible one time this week. Or if you're the sinner who came in here just covered in guilt and shame, I don't want to offend you, but in the words of my seminary friend, you need to get over yourself. Because the gospel is so much bigger than you. It's so much bigger than what you can do. It's so much bigger than your good works and your righteousness and your sin. It's so much bigger. It's about him and his goodness and his righteousness and his approval and what he did in dying on the cross for you. And when we fix this good news in our minds, when we believe the gospel, we're changed, transformed by the renewing of our minds, and it enters us into a freedom and a wholeness and a holiness that we can never achieve on our own. If you've never trusted God, if you've never prayed God halastron, I just want to invite you to join me to do that right now. Let's pray. Father, we recognize your grace and goodness And what you did in sending Jesus Christ to die for us and doing what we could never do on our own. Father, I just pray for those who are here now, for those who are recovering Pharisees. God, that you would allow them to give up their guilt and their shame and lay it at the foot of the cross. And say that Jesus Christ's work is enough and to receive your pleasure, your justification, your righteousness, not on what they do, but on on what you have done. And God, I, I also want to pray for those who came in here who've never tried because they gave up long ago. They know that they can't be good enough. God, I pray that they'd be like that sinner and they would pray right now, God, that they put their whole trust in you, their whole trust in your righteousness and your goodness and your kindness that leads them to repentance. And God, I pray that we as a church, as we believe and as we cling to your gospel, be a church that lives in wholeness and holiness the way you've called us to. Pray this in God's, in Jesus' name. Amen.